we have gone from 2000 years of classical education to now uh, a, a new, I think the best word for it is kind of secular progressive education that instead of building and drawing people into uh, the great traditions and history of the West, uh, it's really uh, undermining that tradition and making people kind of hate it, I think. Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. If you've been paying attention to the controversies dividing the education system in America today, you may want to listen to Jeremy Tate. Jeremy will talk to us on this episode about the benefits of classic education and how he sees the changes in the school system in America from neo-Marxism to ideologies that run counter to the values of many families. Classic education is on the rise in America, teaching students on subjects that were once cherished in classrooms for centuries, but were then swept away in the headlong rush to reinvent the education system. Jeremy Tate is the co-founder and CEO of the Classic Learning Test, a classical alternative to the SAT. Before we get to Jeremy, it's time for our Future Shock 2.0 segment with workforce trends expert Ira Wolf. Ira Wolf, welcome back for Future Shock 2.0. There's a new report out on remote work. It makes fascinating reading. It does. Thanks, John, for having me back. Most people probably know that work flexibility is a hot topic. Uh, and there's a new report that just came out from, uh, they call it the State of the Remote Workplace. Uh, it's put out by Global Workplace Analytics, uh, Kate Lister, and Al Labs. Uh, and many of you have seen their technology around. So these are, these are people and, and organizations that are focused on this. What they found was that 68% of workers now say they want to work fully remote or hybrid. That's up 3% from 2021. Uh, those wanting to be fully remote increased by 6%. Problem is that there's only one third of leaders that are sold on the idea. So you have two thirds of the, uh, of the workforce says, yeah, we want remote or hybrid. And one third of the leader says, yeah, so we've got a big gap in there. Here's another issue. Only 21% of employers allow their people to work from anywhere. So when we talk about remote work, there's also a concept of where is that remoteness? Uh, and does that mean I can work from a beach in Tahiti? <laughs> uh, the answer is no, because if you live in Tahiti, Bali, or even another state, we don't even have to go out of the country. We can move to central U.S., and move to Indiana, Oklahoma, Nebraska. The state laws are different. If the company is based in New York or Pennsylvania or California or Texas, and you move out of state, uh, there's some challenges. Smaller companies don't have the resources uh, to, to deal with, with all the tax nexus. Um, here's another problem. Um, nearly half of the employers who were surveyed don't ask their employees about the remote work preference. So they make these policies and they're, you know, I don't know if it's the ivory tower or the C-suite or wherever they're making it. Maybe it's their home office. They're making some of these decisions, uh, but they're not asking. And that's, that's just silly. Uh, and about 40% have don't share the results of the surveys with the respondents, which is an age old problem. Interesting enough, we can go down into the generations because we talk about this all the time that a lot of these solutions are not neatly fit into a box. <laughs> they just don't. So the desire to work fully remote 
no surprise, it's highest among millennials. About 44% of millennials say they'd like to work fully remote. Here's what's interesting, though. Gen Z, which is the even younger generation, mostly, let's say, 26 to 28 years old and younger, they want to work hybrid. So Gen Z wants to go into the office sometimes. Millennials want to work fully remote. Baby boomers, no surprise, John, our peers, uh, are highest for those who want to go back to the office, but it's only 31%. Wow. It's the highest group that wants to be in the office full-time is baby boomers. And women more likely want to work fully remote than men. So when you think about strategy, when you think about an organization, what are they going to offer? Look at your demographics. Look at where the comp- not only where it is, but where it's going. So if you have a lot of baby boomers retiring, maybe maybe currently a survey today may indicate that they all want to work in the office, come back. But that's not going to hold up two or three years from now. So thinking about office space and rentals and and leasing, we can go down that rabbit hole with where that's going to be. But it's a lot more complicated. One more thing on there. There's only half of employers who are teaching their workers how to participate remotely and effectively in meetings. The people were just thrown into this mess and figuring out on their own. Half of them only half trained their managers how to lead a remote and hybrid workplace. So the glass is half full or half empty, depending on when I look at it. Half of the people that are participating in meetings and half of the managers are still fumbling their way through this process three years later. And less than half provide education around the use of the communication tools. So even if it's something as simple as Slack, they say, hey, we got a great tool. You can communicate by Slack now. You don't have to do email. So what? You don't teach people how to use it, how to use it effectively, when it should be used. Uh, There's a whole series of challenges. And uh, I'll just close with one thing. The digital employee experience is incredibly important. There's a cybersecurity company called Avanti that did a great report on digital employee experience. And they discovered that as many as one in four employees are willing to quit their job or have quit their job because of a bad digital employee experience. That was Ira Wolf. Ira is a workforce trends expert, a top five global thought leader in his field and host of the very popular Geek Skeezers and Googleization podcast. Catch more of Ira this Thursday, January the 12th at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And it features the famed bank analyst Dick Beauvais of Odeon Capital Group and Matt Van Alstyne, Odeon co-founder and managing partner and yours truly. And of course, Go up there and listen to Odeon Capital Conversations every week on Apple, Spotify and more for in-depth analysis and conversations on Wall Street, the Fed, inflation, jobs, banking, brokerage, the geopolitical landscape and much more. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council.
My guest is Jeremy Tate. He is the co-founder and CEO of the Classic Learning Test, a classical alternative to the SAT. Jeremy is also a nationally recognised leader in the classic learning movement in America, K-12. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Jeremy Tate, welcome to my show. We're going to talk about education. I got to ask you, first of all, when I look around me here in the great United States of America, although maybe it's not so great what I'm going to say next, um, the education system, the public education system seems to be in free fall. Now, there's lots of exceptions. Mm. You know, there's lots of communities have great public school systems, but in general, all we read about and hear about is a collapsing public education system. I mean, you look at New York yeah. City, they, they spend more per capita than m- many other parts of America, maybe the highest in America. And the results are deplorable, except for some of the charter schools, uh, which we can talk about on private education. And by the way, it's not a knock on yeah. public education there is a a place for that but the way it's constructed in america according to analysts and the critics uh, is it's just a total recipe for disaster what's your thoughts you know we've we've gone uh we've embraced uh if you're a c.s lewis fan uh we have embraced in america uh what he describes uh as, as the green book and the abolition of man a kind of education that is divorced from human formation uh, that is divorced from natural law, that is divorced from tradition. Uh, and instead, we've embraced one that's very much utilitarian focused. The whole point uh, of education in the U.S. right now, ma- mainstream K-12, is college and career readiness. And it might not sound like there's anything wrong with that, but college and career readiness as the goal of education is different than the goal of education for almost every other generation. Historically, the goal of education was human formation. The goal of education was the cultivation of virtue. Uh, and, and the irony is that when college and career readiness becomes the goal, you end up with people that are not at all college and career ready. Uh, they're, not, they're not adults. They're not mature. They're not self-disciplined. Uh, they don't have a good work ethic. Uh, so we're seeing a massive, massive uh, exodus right now uh, from the public school system. Homeschool, explosive growth in homeschooling, classical charters. Every classical charter I know of has a, a massive wait list. Uh, classical Christian schools opening up left and right, a revival in Catholic school education as well. So it, it's exciting time. I, I'm optimistic actually getting that we we perhaps hit rock bottom in American education. Any numbers on those charter schools and the the revival, it sounds like, in Catholic education? Yeah, you know, it, it, we'll start maybe with the homeschool side. The homeschool side, we've gone from 13,000, the first time that we have good U.S. Census data on homeschooling in America, 13,000 in 1973, all the way to well over 5 million today. The homeschool, it, it's explosive. The charter school movement, especially in places like Texas, Arizona, more and more Louisiana, Colorado, even California, I, I cannot find, I mean, you can't find it. Uh, one of these classical charter schools that does not have a wait list often as big as the entire school. Uh, there's hundreds now of these classical charters. Uh, there is over 500 schools now in the country that are described as classical Christian schools. Uh, and so these schools are looking back to the past, not to try to take us back to the 1800s or something, but to say, you know what? We, we have forgotten. We threw the baby out the bathwater. We have forgotten 
uh, so much of what the old world had right. Now, they didn't have everything right, uh, but we need to bring the very best of the old world uh, into the new world. And that, that's what CLT wants to be doing as well. And so we get to what you're doing and you're offering the education system in a moment. But um, in New York City, uh, New York State, um, more specifically, they're spending something in the region of $28,000 per student uh, yeah. in the most recent budget numbers. And the results, um, they're mediocre at best. But, you know, the other the other issue that constantly comes up, at least in, in recent times, is the uh, curricula and the whole, um, let's call it the ideology that's increasingly running through the public education system and a kind sure. of, disabuse me if I'm wrong, a kind of neo-Marxism in the way things are set up. You know, I, I think what we're talking about here is, is a way uh, to, to view the world, right? It's impossible to not impart a worldview to students uh, when you're teaching. Any kind of education will do this. It has to by default. And so when we're talking about neo-Marxism, essentially what we're really talking about is imparting a worldview that primarily views the world through a lens of oppressed and oppressor, right? And I don't even think we have to say that there's that's it, it's wrong to take a look at the world through that that view, right? It's one of many different ways we could view the world through. But when the primary way to interpret everything is oppressed versus oppressor, it ends up getting a very warped view uh, and, and what it can ultimately do, which is so damaging, is that it can strip young people of agency. Uh, you know, this idea, I remember I taught my first three years in, in inner city New York, and it was not, uh, and this is a school, 100% minority population. It was not uh, the black teachers who grew up in New York who were teaching these ideas. It was the young, highly progressive white students, white teachers who grew up in affluent communities who went to a college and got these ideas in their head and they would come back and they would tell these students, you know, the system is, is stacked against you. I remember very well, uh, his name was Mr. Wilkinson. He grew up in Brooklyn, New York, one of the best teachers in the building, 6'2 or 6'3. Uh, and he he got onto one of the new new teachers and he was saying, you're, you're teaching these students uh, that, that everything's stacked against them, that they cannot be masters of their own fate. You're taking agency away from them. That's what's so toxic about this this Marxist ideology. Yeah, it, it's just running rampant. So it, it, it's just going down just this awful, dangerous path. And there are reformers out there, there are critics, and parents are trying to take back control in some school districts. But my gosh, it's a, an uphill battle. It is. You know, we've had 100 years of this. I mean, essentially, education really did not change fundamentally for 2000 years. Uh, the kind of education going back to St. Augustine, going back to Plato's Republic, uh, it was an education that was rooted in the goal of it. Again, the goal of the education was to create, to cultivate virtue. Uh, it was the reason we started teaching history historically. The point of teaching history was to inspire heroic virtue in young people right, to inspire a love of country. Uh, that is not what's happening in most most history classes uh, today at all. If anything, it's, it's the exact opposite. So we have gone from 2,000 years of classical education to now uh, a, a new, I think the best word for it is kind of secular progressive education that instead of building and drawing people into uh, the great traditions and history of the West, uh, it's really uh, undermining that tradition and making people kind of hate it, I think. 
classic learning that you're referring to there um, is very popular now in the charter school system and homeschool system. Give us an overview of what it is for those who may not be all that familiar. Uh, I mean, if they're going through the public school system, a lot of parents will not be familiar with this and um, you may be doing them a great favor here. Yeah, I appreciate that, John. So for, for, for years, it wasn't called classical education. We didn't start calling it classical education until the 1980s or the 1990s, right? And the reason for that is that it was formerly just called education. That's all there was uh, until the beginning. I mean, think about an analogy here with something like milk, right? Now you go to the store and you see organic milk. Well, guess what? 200 years ago, 150 years ago, all milk was organic milk. And now we have to do, we have to add in this modifier uh, to say this milk is organic, right? We're doing the same thing when we say classical education saying this is genuine education. This is a genuine article, right? This is education free from all the junk that has been put in, as in the case with, you know, we, again, we could continue down the road with the, the food analogy if we wanted to. But th- this is education. What, so what is classical education? In some ways, it's impossible to define because it is so big. But first and foremost, it is education where the goal is human formation and the cultivation of virtue. And by virtue, we mean at least the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, the four cardinal virtues of prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. These are virtues that that Western societies agreed on for thousands of years, uh, that these were uh, indisputable. We we wanted each generation to come to exhibit eloquence and kindness and generosity. Uh, These are the seven lively virtues now as well. So character education, virtue education, this was the point. It's interesting to me, John, that for a long time, education was off, often just called formation. You know, they would say he's being sent off to formation or she's being sent off to formation because they were forming the habits, the disciplines, even the likes and the dislike, the taste, right? Giving young people, cultivating an elevated taste for higher things rather than lower things. Education is also the passing on of tradition. Uh, I love the way G.K. Chesterton defines education. He says it's simply the soul of a society as it passes from one generation to the next, right? And so we are handing down. I'd I, I love to share with you, if I could, just yep. a great image of what this looks like. I was at a bar mitzvah a number of years ago, and my daughter's friend was very, very tiny girl. And uh, she, her parents physically handed her uh, the Torah right? And it was massive. The Torah was massive. And you could hardly see the little girl's face when she was holding it, but it was part of the ceremony where the parents were physically passing down this great, rich intellectual inheritance to the next generation. That is what education is. It is passing down. And so we we call this a great books education, right? Uh, An education that it is rooted in exploring, as Matthew Arnold said, the very best of what has been thought and said. The fact now that young people can go from pre-K to a PhD without reading a word of Shakespeare, a word of Dante, a word of Thomas Aquinas, a word of St. Augustine is is really wild, but that's where we're at. And so, as you said, then it's rooted in tradition and in Latin on the curricula too, in many of these classic-oriented schools. So if it works so well and is so brilliant as it is, you, you've convinced me, and I've I always thought it was anyway, from what I knew of it. Why did we, why did drift away from that? Why did, 
why did it sort of dissolve, at least in America? Yeah, it's, it's a great, great question. So how, how did we, if we had this great legacy of 2000 years of classical education, how did we get away from it? And it's a really interesting story. And I think it starts actually with compulsory education, right? In in New England, in the, in the time period right after the American Civil War. So what you have with that is not just uh, compulsory education laws, but you also have uh, industrialization going on the factorizationing of every aspect of American life, right? Kind of the end of craftsmanship. Teaching is an art. Teaching is craftsmanship, right? And what we did is we tried to put education on a factory industrial kind of model instead. Schools very much came to resemble a factory in many ways in terms of uh, the building itself, uh, the regimented ways that the, the, the bells ring and whatnot. It's factory style education. And with that, as is the case in a factory, you don't teach things that are not useful. You don't do things in a factory that are not useful. So let's kind of explore this for a minute, right? Utilitarian education, pragmatic education, there's no value for philosophy. There's no value for art. There's no value for classical literature. There's no value for classical languages. Why? Because you don't use those things, right? And in one sense, sure, that's true. You're probably not going to use classical languages. You're probably not going to use use classical literature, right? But these are the things that create the heart and soul of culture itself, right? Uh, what what is culture apart from stories, apart from drama, apart from theater, movies, plays, right? These are the things that give substance and taste and flavor. We're talking about the traditional liberal liberal arts. We're talking about the humanities here, and um, and that was not in an education system that became highly focused on simply what will people use and let's only talk about what people will use. You end up killing uh, any kind of vision itself. Again, students now can graduate high school and they've never even heard the word philosophy. All right. They've never heard the word theology. They never heard the word ethics before. Uh, and this is this would be really, really wild to any other generation. And and look, even people on the political right, and I'm a conservative actually, but people even on the political right question why we should study philosophy. Well, America literally is simply taking the very best of Enlightenment philosophy and making a country with it, right? I mean, they, they gathered the ideas of John Locke and other Enlightenment philosophers about what would be the ideal country in terms of uh, checks and balances and the authority the people would have over the state itself. Uh, we took those philosophical ideas and we made America with it. There's tremendous value to studying philosophy, to studying the history of ideas. And uh, we, we need to get back to this kind of education, John. Uh, so interesting the way you put it there. So why are more parents and students then rediscovering it now? And um, if the industrial society um, accelerated the push to this kooky, cutter type of education we have in the public square um what value do they see in going back to tradition will it serve them in the modern world yeah and and, and so so well i mean let's talk about some of these colleges you know a school like hillsdale thomas aquinas college in california grove city uh st john's in annapolis school like st john's in annapolis there's no majors it's just a great books education you read the best of what has been thought and said and you do it for four years, right? And so you would say, well, then how does that make a good employee? Why would any parent want that? Well, 
what happens is they, they cultivate a tremendous amount of empathy. They cultivate a tremendous amount of the ability to listen well, to read well, to think well, to speak, speak clearly, to articulate themselves clearly. Any employee wants those kinds of people right now. And in many ways, I think that's been the secret sauce of CLT's success. We hire heavily from Hillsdale College. We hire heavily from Patrick Henry. Uh, it's students that have had an education. And, you know, Mark Cuban, the, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, yeah. he said this in an interview a few years ago. He said, look, in 10 years, there's going to be far more value to somebody with a serious liberal arts education than somebody with an engineering degree, right? Wow. Because, because what can you not automate? You can't automate being fully human, right? You can't automate anticipating where the, how the markets are going to evolve ahead of time and offering the perfect solutions, the perfect products and services at just the right time. There is no young person who has a, a better aptitude for navigating a, a, a rapidly changing job market than somebody with a classical education, right? Uh, they've learned how to think well, how to think clearly. So there's a pragmatic aspect of it that these students are going to be running the world in a couple decades. I mean, these are the best of the best are coming out of these homeschool and these classical charters. The other is that they're, they're also fleeing from the ideology that's being pushed in K-12, right? Mm -hmm. um, it is a lot of parents, you know, we can debate this or not. A lot of parents, they don't agree uh, that gender is fluid, right? Uh, they don't agree uh, with uh, some of these things that are now being taught under the banner of tolerance and acceptance. Mm -hmm. It has reached a point where parents are saying, no, you know, and not not even, you know, just religious parents. I think just normal Americans saying, yeah. you know what, I don't want my boy coming home saying that he can become a girl if he wants to. Yeah, uh, that is all very new and, and very, very ideological. Yeah. Um, what you say there um, about industrialization and the future of the workplace we're looking at a lot more robotics technology and on a separate podcast that i am i'm on every week Odeon capital conversations we've been talking about this the mass introduction of robotics and the changing demographics um, of our workforce and so you make a great point the liberal arts and a classic education will have a more important role going forward my question though is can these influences that you pointed out there in the public education system the ideologies the the gender curricula and um the equity discussions could they creep into classic education or they're incompatible a great question well you know in a classical school students are often they're, they're sitting in a circle uh they might be reading out loud uh, Plato's dialogues uh, and discussing as they go through it, right? That's different than what is happening where they're often reading and discussing uh, some of the hot button contemporary issues in a mainstream public school without actually first doing, um, part of what education ought to do is remove us from our own historical context, right? Uh, that it is, and this is a unique gift of classical education that in many ways you're, you're free uh, from being in a classroom where uh, everybody already has their opinions about the current hot button issues of the day, and you can come to an older text, maybe it's democracy in America, maybe it's, maybe it's uh, Dante's Inferno, whatever it may be, maybe it's Augustine's Confessions, and talk through it. 
with people who may have different political beliefs than you, uh, but you're still going to learn so much from that text and, and exploring the questions that are truly timeless. Mm. Uh, I think if, if, if classical education is going to become more uh, ideological in terms of pushing new ideology, I think it would cease to be classical education in, in any serious way. Tell us about your classic uh, learning test and your program, because you're the CEO and co-founder of your own company, and it's had growing success, and it offers an alternative to the SATs no. and the other testing um, systems that have been around for ages. Yeah, John, I appreciate uh, the question. And, uh, you know, we often think of standardized tests as first painfully boring, like who cares? Who wants to talk about standardized testing, right? So it seems very boring to a lot of people. Uh, and at the same time, uh, we often think of especially the SAT and ACT tests as like, oh yeah, that's a college entrance exam that you go and take once or twice. The SAT and ACT, yes, you do take them for scholarships and for college admissions, but they play a much more powerful role in actually driving curriculum, right? The test, whatever gets tested ends up getting taught. And so if the main test that students are taking, if it requires them to read Chesterton or C.S. Lewis or St. Augustine, then that's going to change what they're reading in the classroom as well. And that was why we launched CLT. We thought, you know what, if we're going to have standardized tests and if these tests are going to be powerful in driving curriculum, then the test ought to put young people in front of the very best of what has been thought and said. Uh, and so that's what students encounter when they take the CLT. They may be reading Darwin, they may be reading Dante, they may be reading Shakespeare or Flannery O'Connor or Catherine of Siena, uh, but the, what they're not going to be reading is what the SAT is doing. Two years ago, hundreds of thousands of students took the SAT and guess what they are reading? Bernie Sanders on the SAT, right? Wow. I, you can't make this up. You can't make this up. That is incredible. Extraordinary, really. So is your test and your program accepted by a lot of colleges? Yeah, it's been accepted by over 200 colleges now, and uh, and a lot of the colleges have actually gone test optional, uh, but a number are going back to requiring a test, especially for homeschool students. And so just recently, Purdue, uh, MIT, they went back to requiring a test. That's likely to continue to happen uh, in the future as a lot of colleges are seeing the downside of not having a test score. Uh, and kind of flying blind and often admitting the wrong students because they don't have a test score. Uh, so yeah, 200 colleges already accept the CLT and we anticipate full uh, adoption within the next five to 10 years. But then doesn't that limit um, the number of colleges students would can get into or will they do yours alongside the SAT if they trying to keep all their options open? Yeah, what we wanted to do is also just create a way better experience. So I don't know if you're a Chick-fil-A fan, John, or not, but I'm a big Chick-fil-A fan. And uh, we uh, we say here we want to be the Chick-fil-A of standardized testing. Uh, and so, you know, you go to Chick-fil-A, you may pull up and you're like, holy smokes, this line's going to take an hour. Mm. And then in three, in three minutes, you've got your nugget, you got your fries, you've got all the right sauces. They're very good at customer service. They're very good at giving a good experience to people. That's what we want to do at CLT. Students take the test from their house. They take it online through remote proctoring. It's two hours instead of four and a half hours. They submit the results and they get the results back in a few days versus a month or so for the SAT and ACT. Just give us some of the colleges that now accept it. So some of the colleges that we just love that accept the CLT that we, we work with very closely, uh, Hillsdale College, 
Calvin University, Grove City College, uh, Messiah, St. John's, Ave Maria, Belmont Abbey. Benedictine is a great college in Kansas. St. Thomas, Franciscan, uh, Thomas Aquinas, University of Dallas, Dallas Baptist, Baylor. Baylor is a great institution. Uh, so we, we've got about 200 partner colleges right now. And again, we, we do expect full adoption in the next five to 10 years. Because at, at this point, when colleges don't accept the CLT, they're missing out on some great, great students. How can people reach you, your website, contact information? The website is cltexam.com. Again, cltexam.com. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Jeremy Tate 41. Jeremy, this has been a most informative, educational and fascinating interview. Uh, good luck with all you're doing. And I hope you'll come back soon to keep us up to date on progress. And in the meantime, I'm going to check out, uh, what did you call it, Chick? Chick-fil-A, I guess. Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A. You got to yeah, be we a have one. We have one in here in, in close to us <laughs> in the New Jersey area. And I do notice the lines, by the way. And so they must be doing something right. So yeah, if you're going <laughs> to emulate great. that kind of business model, you're on the road to stardom and success. John, uh, thank you so much for the invite. Uh, it's great to connect. It's great to be on the show. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.